0: Please be seated and turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. We move to Paul's great doxology to begin the book after his salutation. Verses 3 through 6 are before us, and they read like a Jewish benediction now with the fulfillment of Jesus woven in. Verses 3 through 6 Uh, It forms a long sentence, uh, a glorious sentence that mounts up and builds up. It's uh, like a train moving down the tracks, picking up speed into this uh, beginning of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, two of the grandest uh, chapters in all of the Bible. John Stott talks about these verses that are before us, saying, The whole paragraph is full of God the Father, who has set his love and poured his grace upon us, and who is working out his eternal plan. We have a one-sentence section before us, and it makes up this paragraph. So please hear as I read God's holy word, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we can be prone to discouragement and worry, doubt and guilt, even shame. Thank you for the assurance that your holy word provides, the certainty that is laid before us, even though our feelings sometimes betray us. Guide us now as we read and study this amazing sentence which moves toward the grand apex of all praise being given to you. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. These verses are meant to rescue us from the insecurity that we feel because of our own failures, because of the lack of our performance, because of our disobedience, and the fear that we have from outside forces. This passage is meant for children to be liberated by their father. Even despite what they're dealing with internally and externally, this is a father telling his children that they need not fear. And here's the reason why you don't have to fear. This passage was never meant to be some kind of club to beat people up with. This passage is a declaration from our father to us, his children, the voice of God about his children. And it's forceful, it's sure, it's pointed, it's indisputable, it's revelatory, and it's clear. A father talking to his children, and his children hear, and they're strengthened. Over the years, I've watched my children play sports. I coached them for some time. A few years ago, I had an interesting experience that was very clear to me. I know that I can tend to get excited at sporting matches, and so when I was a coach, I tried to be quieter, People were often surprised at how quiet I was compared to what they know me to be like when I was coaching. Then when I was just the parent watching my sons play, it became more difficult. So I volunteered to be the cameraman for the team at HCA. I thought that would keep me from yelling anything I would regret. And so I started filming a lot of the games. And I was, for the most part, able to keep everything under my breath as things were playing out. From time to time, I would yell something to my sons. And over time, I grew to realize it didn't do any good to try to coach them or tell them when they did something wrong. So I erred on the side of mostly just telling them when they did something good. They just needed a word from their father that they were doing well. And if I messed up, they'd let me know, Dad, I don't need to hear that if it's them messing up. On the other hand, I could tell that they knew when I was saying something to uh, assure them or to encourage them or to keep them going, and I could tell that helped. That was good for me, and it was good for them. But it didn't always work just like that, because sometimes if you're yelling in favor of your children, there are people who are listening, and they may be rooting for the other side, and they might not interpret what you say the way you meant it just for your children. There was one game I'll never forget. It was when my son AJ was a senior and Nico was a sophomore and they played well together um, on, the, on their school team. In their club settings, they couldn't ever play together. So this is neat to see them play together for that whole year. We were playing Gardner-Edgerton in a game that should have spelled complete destruction for us. Gardner-Edgerton is a 6A school with over 1,000 students. We were at that time a 1A school with 100 or less. And if you do the math, if you have 100 students, half of them are boys, how many of those can actually play soccer? Just a handful. And it was our team against Gardner. Uh, Gardner should have crushed us. They were right to think that they could. But it didn't sit well with our coach and our players when their coach was overheard saying to his team, take it easy. We don't need any injuries with these guys. And even said to our coach, you know what, let's not Go too hard in this one because we have to play of some other team in the next couple of days and want to be fresh for that. In other words, we're gonna beat you. We all know it, so just kinda of lie down. Then to make it worse, one of the players on the other team who played club soccer with my son Nico said to him as they were walking by before the game started, Nico, your team is trash. I didn't hear all that till afterwards. I was just the father hoping my sons could hold their own. And I was sitting next to parents on the gardener side. I knew some of them from the club setting, and I was filming, so there I was, and I can hear them talking, laughing a little bit about us as an opponent. Well, 10 minutes into the game, it was obvious they were a much better team. It was only a matter of time before they would score and start beating us. But it was right about that time when someone sprang Nico loose on the side, and he chipped a ball over their goalie to go up one nothing. and it was dead silence on their sideline. Our team was subdued because they knew they were being outplayed, but we're up one nothing. And I yelled with all sorts of excitement for how great they had done. Five minutes left in the first half. It looked like a miracle that was still one nothing. They had more than 15 shots on our goalie. We had only one shot on theirs, and it was the goal that Nico scored. But with five minutes left, my son AJ passes to my son Nico, and my son Nico scores the second goal to go up 2 nothing. only the second shot from us. They had 25 total by that point, and we go into halftime 2 nothing. Should not have happened. Not the miracle on ice, but as far as I was concerned, better than that. And the coach was subdued and the players were subdued and the guys that were talking trash to Nico were on the bench for the rest of the second half as their team tried to tie the game. Now I wish I could tell you we won the game, we didn't. And that's not the part I'm using to illustrate this point about a father talking to his child and how it's perceived. What happened in the next half was a a nonstop onslaught of shots where our goalie faced a record number of, of shots and made saves. Still 2-0, but then it was 2-1, then it was 2-2. Two two. Five minutes left in the game, very few chances uh, on our side. And again, Nicholas gets a chance, beats a last defender, goes in on goal, into the eighteen, into the box where a penalty could be. Their other defender comes and takes him out with the ball, but takes him out first, drops him in the box, should have been a penalty kick. No call. They ended up winning as the minute left in the game. But we should have had a penalty kick. And as soon as that happened, I just stood up as I was filming. I said, no way. Come on, ref. Get out your get out your card. Get out your whistle. And, of course, the Gardner fans are looking at me like, you sit down. What are you talking about? That shouldn't be a penalty. My team's thinking it should be a penalty. My sons were themselves incensed that this did not get called. Everybody was. Strong statement from the father to his sons about what had happened, the injustice they received, how well they had done. But it wasn't too well received by the people on the other team. Sometimes when you read Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, there are people that will argue with this notion that God chooses like this, that he elects some, meaning he's not electing others. And there's a harshness people will apply to these verses. But these verses were not intended for them. These verses were, these verses were intended for God's children. Because God's children need that encouragement. God's children need to know that it's not about their merit. It's not about their accomplishments that makes God love us. It's God chose to love us. It's God's choosing to predestine us to adoption. We have to hear that because we are low when it comes to to our guilt and to our shame and our confidence in ourselves. And God the Father wants His children to know they can have this confidence. Some listening might not like what they hear. That's unfair. We don't like the way... What about... God's not concerned with that. He's concerned with his children being lifted up. That's the exact point Ephesians is written in. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6 especially. This is the word of God to his children. To God's children, they are words of assurance. They are words of confidence. They are words of hope because of what Christ has done on our behalf. What we have before us is God's word about choosing a people for himself. This is a corporate statement about the church, and it's also applied individually. This is a divine statement, not one of human speculation. John Calvin and Martin Luther did not invent election. The Bible teaches what God says about election. Brian Chapel, who speaks on this passage, said, "...the message of God's love preceding our accomplishments and outlasting our failures was meant to give us a profound sense of confidence and security in God's love so that we will not despair in situations of great difficulty, pain, and shame. This is the Father's word to his children with no apologies about what it says. Because of God's electing love through Christ, we are recipients of a continuous flow of eternity-shaping blessings— And that's what this one long sentence sets out to describe. As this sentence builds up from verse 3 to verse 6, imagine an eagle taking off. Have you ever seen the slow way that an eagle takes a few steps and then it flaps its massive wings slowly and powerfully lifting up? And then it takes off into this beautiful, powerful flight. The commentator Robinson used this very picture in describing these verses. and said the preliminary flight of an eagle, rising and wheeling round as though for a while uncertain what direction in his boundless freedom he shall take. This lofty flight of the eagle is what we have rising up in these verses, 3 through 6. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Please notice in verse 3 the full activity of the Godhead here. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The will of the Father, the work of the Son, and the agency of the Holy Spirit will start to out, flow out of verse chapter 1. The salvation of a people for himself. The full work of the trinity we are granted every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places it says this is a way of saying the benefits we have gained from god in salvation are far more profound than just what may be applied in this physical life they're still great in this life but they're even greater still spiritual blessings are just as real as physical ones but they are eternal Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places refers to spiritual, eternal blessings where Christ now reigns. And in some sense, we are there with him already. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places has to do with a completely redefined new life in Christ that only those who are chosen by God and adopted by God through Christ can fully understand and start to appreciate. Newly defined and directed lives. That's what we have in Christ. Paul is fond of this phrase, in the heavenly places. And he uses it to accent a major doctrine, a major scriptural doctrine, that of union with Christ. We are crucified with Christ, nevertheless we are alive in him as well. Not us, but Christ lives through us. Union with Christ is our identity now and it we have to see this passage and understand the full of Christology in the New Testament through the doctrine of union with Christ. Paul uses the phrase, in the heavenly places, in connection with our union with Christ. Later in the same chapter, in Ephesians one, nineteen and 20, Paul writes, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, That he worked in Christ, see the reference to Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So the heavenly places refers to where Jesus is. Seated at the right hand of God, where God has been totally satisfied with the work of Christ. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And our passage says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours through Christ. The theme goes on in Ephesians in chapter 2, verse 5. When we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. See the union with Jesus. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In the heavenly places is where Christ is. And we have every spiritual blessing in that place with Jesus, in union with Christ, in fellowship with the Father. Later in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in the heavenly places is directly connected to where Jesus is, and we have that place in Christ in union with Christ. Ephesians 6 closes out the book. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, So the use of in the heavenly places is always our place in connection with Christ. Up against powers that may come spiritually against us, but we have the strength because we are granted these blessings in Christ. Christ is in the heavenly realms and so are we. He is literally there and we are there representatively by Christ on our behalf. He promises us heaven and all that we will need on the road there, the road we travel now. I referred to Brian Chappell earlier, and I refer to him again here. The reality of our heavenly status in Christ makes earthly challenges less intimidating, even if they're not less real. It's not that as we think of our place with Christ at the right hand of the Father, it's not as though that relieves us from our troubles. But we can endure our troubles knowing that true reality. That every spiritual blessing is ours in the heavenly places. In the ultimate sense. Paul is introducing this concept of union with Christ. And he'll ride this concept throughout his epistles. When we believe in Christ, we are placed in union with him positionally. So all the many benefits of salvation that we receive... Come because of Christ, to whom we are united. Again, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. What are some of those blessings? We've just spoke in general terms, being in Christ. But what are the actual blessings? Well, the passage unloads them. We're chosen in Christ we are justified and sanctified in Christ. We are adopted through Christ. We are living statements of praise to God because of Christ. Union with Christ is why we have so many blessings. And the foundation of this union with Christ is the sovereign choice of God himself. First, we are chosen in Christ. Look at verse 3 and then verse, now verse 4. Even As he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Notice it doesn't say, predicting that we would be worthy of salvation, he chose us in Christ. All of chapter 1 is very purposefully void of anything we contribute. If you're going to say we contribute anything, it would be the sin that needs rectifying. But chapter 1 says it as plain as plain could be stated. Even as he chose us in him, when did he do it? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. What does this mean? It means that God chose us before the world began, before the world was created. God elected a people before time. Now, the timing of God's choosing is important because we can know for sure that his choosing is not based on our accomplishments or our merit. The timing of God's choosing takes away any idea that we did something to earn our salvation, anything to earn our salvation for that matter. Before we had done anything at all, God elected some for salvation. John Calvin described divine election as the foundation and the first cause Of all our blessings. Because God, of His own choosing, placed us in union with Christ, we have all these benefits that flow that are also the action of God. To whom God chooses, they receive justification. They're made right with God, again, because of Christ. They are sanctified, or they're grown in their holiness. They're grown in their Christ-likeness, again, because of Christ and by God's work. They're adopted. They have security. They have eternal blessings. All because God has chosen to bestow this. God is a sovereign God who does not consult anyone. He is a choosing God. He chose Adam as the head of the race. He chose Noah to preserve the race. He chose Abraham to be the father of many nations. He chose Jacob over Esau when they were babies to continue manifesting his grace through his covenant. He chose Israel as a nation to be the host of his elect. He chose Moses to lead his people out of bondage and provide a picture of Christ. He chose David to be king after his own heart, when it was a sin for the people to even ask for a king. He chose Esther to save Israel when they didn't deserve it. He chose the disciples to be apostles, despite their cowardice and their ineptitude. He chose Paul to be his chosen instrument, despite Paul's sin and rebellion. The God of Scripture is a choosing God and electing God from the beginning to the end, and praise him for that. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him, In Him being Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. These words of fatherly encouragement were a definite and real and tangible encouragement to the Ephesian children who were struggling against the real forces of evil in their own life and temptation and struggling against opposing external forces. And this is the purpose for us as well. But why did He choose us? What is the purpose of divine election? Verse 4, he chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. Holy and blameless. Another way of saying it is he chose us so that we would be justified and sanctified through Christ. This is what it ultimately means. It's embodied in making us holy and blameless before him. He chose us for this. Holy, it means to be separated out. To be holy has to do with the possession of righteousness that makes us separate from others. To be holy has to do with being unique or special. To be holy has to do with righteous perfection. In the opening verses, Paul referred to the church as the Hagioi of God, the saints, the holy ones. Saints literally means the holy ones. This is a reference to our status before God in Christ. We are holy before God now because we are justified before God through Christ. When Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you therefore must be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Some versions say you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Clearly nobody could do this apart from the grace of God shown to them in Christ. And Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount as a sermon about himself that would drive people towards him. Of course the concept is much older than the Sermon on the Mount in Leviticus 11. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy as I am holy. God chose us, you, for justification through Christ. He also chose us and you to grow in holiness. God chose us in Christ to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Christ. Romans has a similar chain of glorious blessings described in Romans eight twenty nine and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the work of Christ manifests itself in our lives by saving us, justifying us, and then growing us, conforming us into his likeness, ultimately unto glory. In Romans 8, verse 30, In those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. In those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's choosing us to be holy and blameless played out. The work of Christ to take away our sins. That's not the total story. If Christ took away our sins alone, we'd still be stuck with nothing of merit, with an empty account in front of God. But Christ did way more than take away our sins. He gave us his own righteousness and he did this by God's choosing and God's working out every detail of this application. In our Confession of Faith, we have a wonderful statement about God's electing love, his predestining us to be his children. And all the blessings that are poured out upon us are captured in much of chapter 3. But one statement that's helpful and very pastoral for us reminds us of this being a word of the Father to his children for a reason. Westminster Confession, chapter 3, the doctrine of predestination, this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of the eternal election of their eternal election so shall this doctrine afford a matter of praise reverence and admiration of God and of humility diligence and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. You notice election and predestination don't remove the responsibility for us to trust in Christ. Now you know and I know reading this, we could not trust in Christ if it were not for God choosing us. But for the here and the now, if you wonder, am I elect, am I God's, do you rest in Christ? Because this message should drive you away from anything your works can do like any message that's truly gospel centered or gospel saturated it will drive you away from any confidence in the flesh in all confidence must be placed in christ so if your confidence is in the work of christ on your behalf that's how you know whether you're elect or not because you can't believe that unless god's chosen you for it because he's chosen to apply these blessings to you if you know christ because you are the chosen of God. And this is something all of us need to hear because we waver about our feelings, even our understanding of our own belief. We have doubts, we have fears, we have sins that creep in and shame that rock our assurance. And so our Father comes in Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, and reminds us that he has chosen us in the beloved, in Christ. You know, election, justification, sanctification, all big words that you might have to to look up to some degree if they're new to you. They're biblical words and concepts. They're doctrinal realities, but they can seem a little bit cold. There's no doubt. They can seem um, a little esoteric even. How does that personally affect me? One might rightly ask. They're legal terms, positional terms. They can lack a certain connection to emotion or feelings. But what comes next should grip every one of us at an experiential level. One of the great spiritual blessings we have We are adopted as children. Now, we can feel that. We can feel what that means, to be adopted. It says in the very last phrase of verse 4, which would have been better to be translated into verse 5. In love. So we cannot disconnect God's choosing, his elective love, his predestination. We can't disconnect this from his love. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Again, union with Christ is this basis. But he chooses to make us his children. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Notice, Just as earlier, God's choosing was before the foundation of the world. Here we read that we were predestined. And Calvin notes rightly that we were not then in existence when he predestined us. And therefore, there was no merit of ours. The cause of our salvation, Calvin writes, did not proceed from us, but from God alone. This is almost overly emphasized in these verses. Predestination gives us a sense of security about God's action toward us. He's not going to take it back. Verse 5 He predestined us for what? For adoption to Himself. Adoption is such a personal thing. This is why it reaches us on another level. It's not just, it is a legal concept, but it also embodies a sense of belonging. Adoption has to do with choosing to make someone your child. When God chooses us in Christ, he marks us out as his children. Adoption is by grace, not by right. I mentioned the confession just a little bit ago. I mentioned it again here because it's a rich passage from the confession on chap- in chapter 12. All those that are justified, God vouchsafes or secures in and for his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption. And then he says, what happens because of adoption? By which, or by adoption, they are taken into the number, they're made to belong. They enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They're part of the family now. They have his name put upon them and all that that carries. They receive a spirit of adoption. They have an internal mechanism now that confirms they are actually his children. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace and go to their father anytime. He's their child. They're enabled to cry, Abba father. They're pitied. They're protected. They're provided for and chastened by him as a father, not punished, disciplined because he loves them, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Back to verse 4, and then to verse 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. God's choosing us is related to his love for us. God's love is his choice to place his affection upon us. J.I. Packer said, Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the adoption relationship. Adoption gives us a sense of belonging when we didn't have it before. People are starving to be genuinely part of something, and adoption grants that. People want to belong to a community, and adoption gives that. Even people who are relatively reclusive or introverted want a sense of belonging. Adoption gives a person or a people a sense of value. To be adopted means someone had to go after you. Someone had to pay a price for you. This means you are worth something. There is a sense in which an adopted child is chosen, whereas one born biologically is not really in that sense. To be adopted means you have a value And that feels good to know you have that value. To know that you matter to someone, that someone thinks you are important, that's a powerful encouragement. Adoption gives a sense of being loved. To be adopted means that someone has continual affection for you. There's a sense of being cherished by someone who has made an effort to make you their own. What does this mean for us personally as we think about it. Every so often I have a folder that I keep uh, important documents in and I have to move some stuff around in it for whatever reason. And I find this document, it's the, the actual statement of adoption we received from the state of Kansas and the court of, Can- the state of Kansas when we adopted our daughter Willow. And it's a long document, but I'll look at the very last statements that it says in that, adop- in that adoption notice or that adoption form. It says, It is therefore by the court considered, ordered, and judged, and decreed that the decree of adoption asked for in the petition be it granted hereby, making said minor child the child and heir at law of the petitioners, Anthony J. Felich and Sherry L. Felich, husband and wife. The name of said minor child be and is hereby, hereby changed to Willow Grace Felich. And said parents should be and they are entitled to exercise any and all rights of parents of the said minor child and are subject to all the liabilities of that relationship. That's a statement, an official statement of adoption that made Willow our child fully with all the rights and privileges that come with being a child. That's what God has predestined us to to be his children through Christ. Finally, if you look at the last part of verse 5 into verse 6, what is the great outcome of God's sovereign grace showered upon us through Christ and union with Christ? Well, we become living statements of praise to God because of Christ. All that we receive in these blessings stand as a testimony to God's glorious grace for all to see and acknowledge. Verse 5, predestined as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What's the purpose? Well, we don't know all of it, but we know what verse 6 says. To the praise of his glorious grace. This glorious grace is what he has blessed us with in Christ. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The beloved, a statement of the Messiah in the Old Testament. The beloved one, my beloved. My beloved. Salvation is based on God's pleasure and will, not on our pleasure and will. Salvation comes through divine love alone. When it says in the last part of verse 6, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, you could literally translate, translate that, he has begraced us in Christ. He has begraced us in the Lord Jesus To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Salvation from beginning to end is all the work of God, all of it. And so what else can we do as recipients but give him the praise he deserves? All the work is his, and all the praise is his. And he is our father. And he's saying to us, to you, I chose you. I chose you so that you would be justified and you would be sanctified in Jesus, your Savior. I chose you for this, and I chose you to be my child, adopted with all the privileges, all the rights that come with being my child. Just as Jesus is my son, he is your elder brother, now you stand before me as I see you, I see Christ. What security this gives believers, who all of us struggle with doubt, lack of belief, insecurity, guilt, Shame, but God says you're my child. And he knows all of that. Before all of that, he chose you. You know, election is mysterious, but it's clearly displayed in Scripture. It's connected to God's love and to his grace. Election, when we think about it, really stimulates humility, not pride. Election provokes gratitude, thankfulness. Election is an incentive to holiness. Election gives a bedrock of confidence for believers. Election removes any kind of confidence that we might have in the flesh and drives us closer to the source of our salvation, Jesus and his finished work alone. Once again, Brian Chappell said so astutely, election is the basis for our comfort when we face the limitations of our actions, will, and choices. And how often do you face the limitations of your actions every day? How about every minute? How often do you face the limitations of your will or the choices you make? How often do you feel like you're inadequate to make the right choices? About every day, every hour? Well, election, divine election, it's the basis for our comfort, knowing our shortcomings and our lack of accomplishment. The passage before us is meant to rescue us from the insecurity we feel because of our failures and the fear that we experience. The passage was never meant to be a club to beat people with. The passage is a statement to the father, to the children. The passage is a declaration from our God toward us, his children. The voice of our father about us, his children, is forceful, sure, pointed, and clear. And who among us does not need such a comforting, assuring, securing word from their Father? And we have just that here in Ephesians 1. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, you are indeed sovereign. You are our loving and gracious Father. You have encouraged us greatly by your declarations and promises in your word. By learning more about election this day, may we be more humble and grateful towards you and to others. May the fruit of our learning, by the aid of your Holy Spirit, be lives that are lived to the praise of your glorious grace. I pray this in the name of the one who has secured it all, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.